Good morning again. If you are just tuning in with us, my name is Sam McLaughlin and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to say a special welcome to you if you are visiting with us. If you would like to learn more about our church and how you can be involved, you can sign up for our Friday newsletter. There's a link to that in our post. And doing so gives me your contact information and I would just love the chance to connect with you. During the month of January, in our sermon series called One Wild and Precious Life, we looked at stories from the book of Matthew, stories that told us, revealed to us who Jesus is and who Jesus calls us to be. Today, we continue in the book of Matthew, looking at what happened right after Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, what some people call his greatest teaching. As soon as Jesus walked down the mountainside or down the hill, he began to heal people. In fact, healing comes both before his sermon and immediately after it. Healing bookends his teaching. And if we were to begin at the beginning of chapter 8 today, we would see a pattern of healing. Jesus heals with a word, a touch, and then a word. First, we see this with a man suffering from leprosy and a servant who is paralyzed. And then in today's text, we see it again with Peter's mother-in-law and many sick people who were brought to Jesus. Now, here in verse 14, we learn that Peter... One of the first disciples that Jesus calls to join him in kingdom work is not just a fisherman. He owns a home and he is married. To me, this adds a whole additional layer to Peter's willingness to drop his nets and follow Jesus, leaving everything and everyone behind. What, are, what stakes are those of us who are married willing to take to follow Jesus. Jesus enters Peter's house because his mother-in-law is lying in bed with a fever. Now, the text doesn't give us the details, but we are allowed to imagine them. I imagine that his mother-in-law is lying in a bed, covered with a blanket, trying to control her chills. Jesus walks in the room, comes over to her, softly and tenderly gazes upon her, maybe even locks eyes with her to acknowledge her suffering, and then reaches out to touch her hand. Immediately, the fever leaves her, and she is so relieved and grateful. A soft smile comes across her face, and she jumps up to prepare a table where guests can eat and wash their feet. Later that evening, we are told that people from all over brought their sick friends to Jesus, some who were possessed by demons. And the text says he cast out the spirits with a word and cured all who were sick. Now, one of the first things that I noticed about this passage is that it eradicates the need for what Dr. Brene Brown calls comparative suffering. Often we find ourselves saying, well, my situation isn't as bad as someone else's, and so really I should be grateful. 
Or who am I to grieve when this person I know has lost so much more than me? There may be times when perspective is helpful, but most of the time, when we compare our experiences of suffering, the result is really a bunch of unaddressed pain. Here, Jesus attends to what we might call small needs like a fever and big needs like demon possession. It is important to recognize that all magnitudes of suffering matter to Jesus. Whatever it is that you're dealing with, Jesus wants to heal you. Second, we see the pattern of healing that I spoke about. Jesus heals with a touch and then a word. When I was a senior in college, I learned that one of my childhood best friends became sick with cancer. Now, we sort of disconnected from one another in college. So as I learned that she was entering the dying process, I didn't really see it as my place to reach out to her. But I did attend her funeral. And I remember at 22, it felt like one of the first times I really had to wrestle with the loss of innocent life, the unfairness of death. Katie was truly the nicest person you have ever met. Everyone would have said that about her. When we were younger, we lived down the street from one another, and we played together at her mom's house, this huge cabin with wood floors and ceilings. I can still see us running through it and building some science project out of toothpicks. We played together at her dad's house because he lived right down the street from my grandmother. We went to the pool together. We took trips together. I visited her grandmother with her. We came up with dance routines. If I close my eyes, I can still see her big smile and hear her laugh and her sweet southern draw. So when I sat in the balcony of Shades Crest Baptist Church, looking out at a completely full congregation of people that knew and loved her, all I could do was sob. And I remember in that moment of my deep grief, wondering how and why a kind, thoughtful 22-year-old who had barely lived had to die. My good friend Bart, who was sitting next to me, quietly and tenderly placed his arm around me. He said nothing, but his touch spoke volumes. I think that most of us can recall a moment when a touch spoke volumes in our lives, when a touch offered us an immediate measure of healing. I wonder how many of us today just need to lament the unfairness of death, the loss of innocent lives. How many of us just need to sob and be angry about it? No neat bows and no holding back. And because we know the power of touch so well, I think its absence is something we have to name and grieve in this season of life. We never imagined a world without it. I know I never imagined a world without it. And you have told me your stories of the loss of touch some of you have said you cannot console or touch your parents in nursing homes who are confused about what is going on. 
Some of you have lost multiple friends to COVID and you have not been able to touch your friends or attend their funerals. Some of you have not hugged your family members in over a year. And so here in this space, in this moment, can we lament it? Can we lament all the touch we are missing and how bad that hurts? Because grief and joy can coexist. Because grief and joy can coexist. We can, at the very same time, acknowledge how physical touch has been creatively replaced in this season. We can give thanks for the mental, emotional, and spiritual natures of touch that exist in addition to the physical. What unexpected ways have you felt the touch of your loved ones in this season? On Thursday morning, I lead a spiritual practice called Lectio Divina on Facebook Live. This, for me, is a place of spiritual and emotional touch in a time when we cannot be physically together. We noticed in our gathering this last Thursday that this passage says, Jesus said a word, one word to drive out the demons and cure the sick. And so we wondered together, what was that one word? One person said, maybe it was be gone. (laughs) Another said, maybe it was get, like a good old southern get. (laughs) I'm sure Jesus said it like that. Whatever that word was, in this passage, Jesus shows us that there is power in speaking a word over our pain and our agony. Sometimes we need our word to be the living words of scripture. We need the words that offer us life instead of the negative messages of doubt and despair. Sometimes we may need our word to be the word. Jesus, what are the demons that we need to speak the name of Jesus over? See, I have come to learn in my short life that there are at least two kinds of demons that live beneath our skin. Now, if demons doesn't resonate with you, just substitute that for pain. There is pain that we have yet to deal with. Demons that gnaw at us from the inside until we address their presence. And you can bet that in this season of stillness and loneliness and quiet, this is the time when inner conflict and past pain that has been lying dormant will creep up to haunt you. Part of the healing process is to speak this grief aloud. It's to name it and to admit that it is real, not to wash it away or shove it down. Because if you do... It will continue to find a way to invade your life. The second kind of demons are the ones that we actually have given a great deal of time and effort to addressing. Ones that we do not benefit from looking at again and again. They often rear their ugly heads, trying to get us to live in past mistakes instead of enjoying the present. 
They are demons that resurface like a pinball that bounces back and forth in our minds, causing nothing but chronic shame. So today, I hope that you can be reassured by Jesus' desire to rid you of demons, of unattended to or over-attended to pain. With the help of Jesus, grief does not have to live deep within your veins, consuming your life. You can enter the healing process and move towards a life of greater freedom. This week, I was curious to hear what other people have learned about the healing process. I asked those that are connected to me on social media to answer this question. What is one important lesson you have learned about the healing process? Now, I know in this response that this hit a nerve. 87 people commented. I'm not going to read you 87 comments, but here are a few of them that resonated These are reminders, maybe, for you, or learnings, good news, or a challenge. Hear these word, a word that is spoken to you today. Grief is exhausting. You are allowed to rest your mind and your body. Healing is not linear. We sometimes hurt out of order. Healing does not mean perfect or pain-free. It is much more about learning to accompany your wounds than overcome them. Things that you think will trigger your grief don't. And then things that you least expect to trigger you will hit you hard. You will be caught off guard by grief. When you think that you have conquered one layer of healing is when it's safe for your psyche to bring forth the next layer of healing. It feels so unfair, but really it's your soul knowing when you can handle it. One person said, it's hard to determine all the underlying feelings that cause grief. You have to try to unlearn unhealthy ways of coping and replace them with healthy ways. Sometimes it's two steps forward and three steps backwards. The hardest part is to give yourself grace for feeling the negative thoughts that go along with it. One woman told a story. She said, the healing process is never truly finished. I lost my mom at age seven. And after 25 years, I thought that I had processed all my emotions. Then I had a child and a whole new side of her loss opened up to me. I started seeing her death through the eyes of a mother, and it crushed me. But I look back now, and I think it's beautiful, and it makes me feel closer to her. What a gift to feel close to someone who's been gone for so long. One person said, I have learned that it is a process that one must go through and not around. It takes a lot of time and work, and we each heal in our own time and in our own way. We do come out on the other side if we allow God to work through it with us. Someone offered us a beautiful image. The quickest way for anyone to reach the sun and the light of day is not to run west, chasing after the sunset, but to head east, 
plunging into the darkness until one comes to the sunrise. And finally, find your safe people and let them walk with you on this journey. Healing is not meant to be done in isolation. We need others to hold us up. What I love about this last one, that it is, it is exactly what we witness in our passage today. Friends hold their loved ones up as they literally carry them to Jesus for healing. So I want to ask you to do something. I want you to lean close into your screen. And I want you to reach your hand out. I want you to touch it. We may not be physically together, but we are spiritually connected. We are a community that walks with one another on the journey of life. We are committed to holding one another up in grief. You may feel alone, but you are not alone. We are with you. We are holding you. We are offering you a word and a touch. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.